Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're in the book of John. We have finished in the last month a series on reach uh, where we were looking at the parables or actually the stories of Jesus reaching out and, uh, and doing outreach himself. Now we enter back into our study of the book of John, looking at the Christ who satisfies. And we find ourselves in a key part of, a, of the text uh, where uh, we have just, Jesus has just called everyone, or rather those who might see the kingdom of God, to a radical new birth to be born again. And so we're in John 3. If you uh, have a Bible, open to that uh, text. But if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one that you'll find at the end of the pew. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that as your own. So now let's look at John chapter 3, look, starting in verse 22. We look at the story of John the Baptist, re-engaging him after a few chapters of a break in John. We see John telling us some profound things about what it means to follow Jesus. Starting in verse 22, the apostle John says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because uh, water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. But I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you now to open our eyes and our ears to this text and You'd speak through the speaker. He needs you a lot right now. We pray you bless this time. And that as a result, we would encounter you and get a taste of glory as we ponder the wonders of who you are, Jesus. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You know, your average bicycle race is pretty simple. It goes like this. Uh, Contestants get on their bikes. They get to the starting line. Somebody shoots a gun or starts the race in some way, and then everybody takes off and goes as fast as they can in order to get to the uh, finish line first. And now that's the average bicycle race that you and I are used to. There is a bicycle race in India, however, 
that is a different kind of race. It's called a slow cycling race. And the idea behind the race is that contestants get on their bikes, they get on the starting line, and then uh, the person, uh, the starter, starts with a starting gun, and then they go as slow as possible on a course uh, to see who can go across the finish line last, if at all. The ground rules are simple. Racers go as slow as possible without putting their feet on the ground or without the bike falling over onto the ground. And uh, they must move forward. They can't go backwards. In their lane, they have to stay in their lane. And the funny thing is, is while they're running this race as slow as possible on their bike, people are on the sidelines cheering for them saying, go slower, go slower. In the end, after some time, some period of time they've agreed to, the gun sounds, and the one who's moved the shortest distance, who is closest to the starting line, is actually the winner. The whole idea of this race is very simple. Losing is winning. Staying behind is getting ahead. Coming in last is actually glory. Today in John 3, we're going to look at the story of John the Baptist as his ministry starts to wind down and Jesus' ministry starts to emerge and explode. And what we're going to see in this text is this very upside-down Christian idea that real glory comes in giving up glory. That real glory comes in giving up glory. And we're going to see with John the Baptist that losing is winning. Should we be surprised? Throughout Scripture, we see all these, these kind of funky, upside-down ideas that come from someone like even Jesus himself who says, he that is first will be last, and he that is last will be first. So here's our question for the day. What is behind Christianity's insistence that losing is winning, that glory is in loss? And what does John the Baptist and his story have to say about that? Let's dive in the text of John 3. Uh, our context for the whole text is that J this Jesus has just finished meeting with a major Jewish leader, a guy who was leader of the Sanhedrin. That was kind of the political slash religious leadership of the time. And uh, his name was Nicodemus, and he had emphasized to Nicodemus that you can't see uh, the kingdom of God. You can't even encounter, really, the kingdom of God without being born again, without new birth coming from God. Now, after this major meeting with this very important person, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and decides to go into the countryside. It'd be a little bit like leaving Charlotte to go into the farmland or foothills of South Carolina or the farmland or foothills of, of uh, North Carolina. And according to the gospel, Jesus goes out and apparently stays there for some time baptizing people. John 4 the next chapter clarifies that Jesus actually didn't decide, uh, baptize people himself. His disciples actually baptized. Nonetheless, you see Jesus going out in the wilderness, going out baptizing people, and you start to think, huh, we've seen this before in the book of John. That's exactly what John the Baptist had been doing. So what you've got here are two ministries of John and of Jesus doing the same thing. So the result is the marketplace of ministry, competition, heats up. 
and creates a controversy for John the Baptist and his disciples. And you see that in verse 25 of our text, where it says this, uh, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Apparently, some kind of discussion broke out over purification between John's disciples and the Jews. And at first glance, like, well, so what? That's some kind of religious argument at that time. And you've got to understand there's likely a reason for this. It's because water baptism that John did, and even Jesus did, was a purification rite in the Old Testament. And it pointed to what God wanted of his priests in the Old Testament, even the heart of priests. It was meant to be an external sign, that is, water purification was, representing the heart being cleansed. So followers of God would have complete devotion to him. Purification is a sign of pursuing devotion to God. Now the debate that likely occurred about John taking baptism from the Old Testament probably came around the fact that he was now applying it to everyone. Remember, baptism was for priests in the Old Testament. Now he's applying it to everybody. And that was part of the argument, maybe even discussion going on. More than likely, in that discussion, Jesus' name comes up, that Jesus is doing the same thing and uh, baptizing as well. And John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, get a little nervous about this. They're worried about hearing Jesus. John 4 goes on to tell us that Jesus is baptizing more people than even John was at this point. So John's disciples come to John, they're pretty uptight, and they complain to him that Jesus is bringing prophetic competition to the spiritual marketplace of the time. So we've got to stop. We've got to ask, well, what's the big deal? What's the problem here? Why are they so concerned? Well, I would say that they are very concerned about losing something, losing glory. It's clear Jesus is presenting a competitive edge against John's ministry. And back in the first chapter, we even saw that this was affecting John's ministry in John 1, where John the Baptist already lost a few of his disciples to Jesus. Remember when he said, hey, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a couple of John the Baptist's uh, disciples left him to go follow Jesus. So these disciples that are currently with John at this point are worried. Numbers are down. The profit and loss statement was going the wrong direction. Twitter hits were declining. This meant less glory for them. They had been riding high on the success of John for a long time, been enjoying the great press, and they enjoyed being associated with John because, hey, if you're associated with somebody who's successful, you look good too, right? Well, they were feeling like failure was on the horizon. Now, what's that got to do with us? Every one of us in this room long for glory in some way. We all want to be associated with success and blessing in some aspect of our lives. And i got to tell you, that desire is not all bad. We are made for dignity. We are made to be glorious. We all have an impulse that's right and good to do things well. But the issue comes in what we think glory really is. Is glory when we look good? Is glory when we look good before men? Or is glory 
when we look good in the eyes of God. The gospel is this. When Jesus gets involved in my life and in your life, he always presents a threat to our longings for glory that reside in ourself, what we want from men. And that's because he wants us to pursue a greater glory, something bigger than us. So, John the Baptist's disciples, wringing their hands at this point, go to John with their concerns, and they say, hey, everybody's going to Jesus. We might imagine at this point that these guys on the side, before they meet with John, say, hey, we got to come up with a strategy to fix this. we got to come up with a marketing strategy. We have got to come up with a publicity thing. Let's start using social media more. You name it. Maybe they even put some nice charts together. If we do these things, we think we can go up in our numbers. But John shocks us in light of the declining ratings. Look at verse 27 of our text of what he says. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves hear me, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Stunning is this response from John. It is not what we'd expect from a leader, a CEO, or even a political party boss. John basically says, I am happy that Jesus is getting better press and his ratings are up and that people are going his way rather than us and me and my ratings. I'm glad the market for eternal life is moving towards him and away from me. We have to ask why. Why would John be happy about this? I mean, nobody likes to see declining things that are going on. Why would, Jesus, why would John be happy about Jesus' rise in glory? Well, three reasons I'd suggest to you. The first comes in verse 27, where John knew this. He knew that all the gifts that God provides are from heaven. They come from God. Every good thing you have in life comes from God, is what James even says. And this is the thing. He understood that every person who showed up in his ministry was a gift, a gift from God. It didn't belong to him in some way. And that was true not only of his ministry, that is John's, but even of Jesus' ministry that God was bringing everyone to Jesus' ministry was a gift even to Christ. Second thing, John knew his role. This is part of why John was embracing Christ in this way. John knew his role, that God had sent him to be the forerunner, to announce to everyone, hey, this is the guy we've been looking for. He was announcing to the world, and he uses this great metaphor of a wedding. Now, you all have been to weddings before, right? The stars of the show are usually the bride and then the groom, in that order, typically in our culture, right? The stars of the show should not be the best man, or for that matter, the maid or matron of honor. And, G- and John highlights that in this text, say, hey man, I am the friend of the bridegroom, I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is the one we focus on. He's the one we've been looking for as he comes to gather his church, his bride. It's his bride, not mine. Third and finally, I cannot help but think that John longed for Christ as his Lord and Savior too. Why would I say that? 
I think he told the Jews in the world multiple times, I'm not the Christ for a reason. That's because he knew that he needed a savior, that he was a sinner, that he needed a lamb of God to die for him and to take his sin away. He needed a Christ to come and purify him through a cross. John tells us all of this for a reason, and the implications of this, these truths are profound. He goes on to tell us, therefore, and we just looked at some of the reasons why John does it. Now he gives us the implication. Therefore, John was happy that Jesus was getting the glory game and was winning it, and that he was losing the glory game in a very temporal sense. He says even this, my joy is now complete. Hey, that sounds like a little bit of our theme verse from John 15, 11, doesn't it? That Christ's joy would be in us and our joy would be complete or full. Well, that's what he's saying here, that he's finding joy in Christ getting the glory. Now, here's a quick application for this. The irony of life is this. We can have complete joy and happiness when our desire for glory is directed to another, more specifically Christ. This is a counterintuitive, especially in our achievement culture in South Charlotte, even Ballantyne, where the world says, when you achieve, when you accomplish something, that's when your happiness will come. When you achieve glory, then you will be happy. But this is the other way around. It's saying when someone else achieves glory for you, that's where you find true happiness. We even find hints of this uh, in, in the uh, offers that Christ makes to other people. In the glory, he says, uh, well, forget that point. That doesn't matter anymore. Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him. John was happy. He was happy because Christ got the glory. He didn't make it about himself. Now, how did John get to this place? How did he get to this place? Why would he live there? Well, he gives us a principle that's worth living by, and boy, is this quotable John the Baptist or what? In verse 30 of our text, he says this, he must increase and I must decrease. That's a, a verse worth memorizing and building your life on. He's saying, I rose like a star, but I burned out like a meteorite. And it's okay, because my job is to point to Christ in my life. And notice he said in the text, I must, he must increase, I must decrease. The implication being, he knows that in God's sovereignty, this is God's plan. This is what God wants of him and even of us in how we live our lives. God oversees John's fading in the background, and it's good. Now, how could John embrace this decline? I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense right off the bat. I mean, if you were having a decline in your business, your life, and things weren't going really well, from, from that point of view, how could you embrace this? Well, the answer is this. John understands that what's happening is connected to purification. He is learning and has been learning complete devotion to God. That's what purification was about. He was pure of heart and could see what God was doing and was willing to give up his glory for another. 
That's the big view that we have to take. Whenever we experience ups and downs in life, the wins and even the failures, take the big view of how God redeems all things for a greater glory. Let's dive in further. What's this got to do with us? Well, he must increase and I must decrease is a great rule of life for anyone, especially those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. We are called to live out our chief end. And those of us in the Presbyterian Reform ranks have our number one catechism question in the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? And we say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Both together working. That is our end. We're made to glorify God. We're redeemed to glorify God. And when Christ purifies our hearts, we'll find ourselves longing for glory and not our own, longing for him and not ourselves. Indeed, the Reformation had this kind of wonderful uh, value in the five solas. Uh, One of the solas was uh, sola deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. In fact, there was a guy named uh, Johann Sebastian Bach who used to sign every one of his works, SDG at the end, Sola Deo Gloria, as a part of every one of his works. And guys, that's how you and I are supposed to live in our days. To ask the question, how am I going to glorify God today? How am I going to enjoy him? And how can I get to the end of the day where I sign it, S-D-G, for the glory of God? John gives us this amazing principle. He must increase, I must decrease. But that brings you and me to a point of life where we have to ask, how? And decrease ourselves. Well, to increase Christ, I want to give you a few pointers. And the first is this. It requires that we sing praise to God in all that we do. We exalt his name in good times and even in hard times. Now, I want to say this. In a religious latently religious culture like South Charlotte in the South, we tend to do that in a fake way sometimes, you know, praise God and things like that, but it's not real. I'm not suggesting we do that. Indeed, what I suggest is that when you consider what Christ has done for you, praise will overflow in your life. So I ask you today, what has Christ delivered you from? What has he delivered you from circumstantially in the last week, in the last month, even in the last year? Let him know how he's rescued you from sin. Let him know how he has rescued you even from circumstantial issues. And sometimes let people know too. That's the real challenge in our time is letting people know in a wise, winsome way. Here's another way to increase Christ in your life. When you tell your stories about yourself, who's the hero in your story? Who comes out looking good? Is it you all the time? Well, that's the way our culture works. Even the pagans do that. When you tell your stories, find a way, a creative, winsome, not religiously weird way to say Christ is the one who is the hero of my life. Third way you can increase uh, Christ in your life is the one we don't think about, but is the one that is the way that God is glorified. Love. 
love. You and I, in the end, can't control what glory looks like and how it plays out. But the one thing we can control, the one thing we can choose, is love. To love with the love of Christ among ourselves, among our neighbors. Yes, even to love Jesus himself. So that's what it looks like as some ways to actually increase Christ in our life. But now comes the fun one. How do you decrease yourself? How do you decrease yourself so Christ gets more glory? Well, first, I get this from our friend Tim Keller. You want to practice self-forgetfulness. I love this phrase. Self-forgetfulness is not thinking less of self, but thinking uh, of self less. Meaning, you are made in God's image. You're glorious by your very nature. And when you're redeemed, you're made to be even more glorious and represent the wonders of Christ. Don't diminish yourself in that way. But at the same time, think of yourself less. Think of others more. Take the role of a servant. Consider others' needs more important than your own, as Philippians 2 says. Here's a second way you can decrease that's going to get uncomfortable. Consider Paul's way. In the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul confesses to having weakness, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, likely a physical ailment, but not absolutely sure. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul even talks about how he's not that great of a speaker. In fact, we know he's not that great of a speaker because in the book of Acts, People are listening to him speak, and and it's nighttime, and the guy falls asleep, falls out of the window, and dies. Paul goes down and (laughs) resurrects him, literally, by praying God's grace on him. But we know Paul wasn't terribly talented. Paul admits to his weakness, and that's the beautiful thing about 2 Corinthians, it's so wonderful, is instead of presenting him Uh, presenting himself with his resume, he presents what he's not good at, where he's insufficient, and where Christ is sufficient. Admit your, your weaknesses to people, not just your strengths. Say things like, I'm not good at this. You'll be amazed how people will step up often and help you, or Christ will work in unexpected ways you didn't anticipate. Third way to decrease Now it gets really uncomfortable. James 5 says this, confess your sins to one another. Again, in southern religious circles, we tend to make looking good uh, religiously a really high value. The problem is you don't find that in scripture. We tell the truth about ourselves. We don't confess sin to each other so that we can get forgiveness from God, but we actually confess to reveal our need for Jesus within a community of people, our need for Jesus to save us. Jesus, as a result of us admitting our need, actually looks good compared to us. Isn't that the point? Here's how I need your help. I've learned in 20 years of pastoral life that I'm a performance addict by nature. I love to perform, even religiously. So Jesus has spent years and years and years of my Christian life working on this issue for me. 
And uh, it's still in process. I'm still working it out. But I've learned this, that one of the things Jesus loves me so much with to remind me of my inadequacies is my emotional limits. I only have so much in me to handle relationships and people and problems. And you don't know how much I want to be the hero. You see, in my family background, I was the hero. I play that role really well. But when I got into ministry, I wanted to be the hero still to people's lives and be the one who comes through with them all the time. But that was part of my story showing up trying to rob Jesus of his glory. That he's the one who's the real hero. I'm just an instrument, a tool that he will use somewhat, a great bit. I don't know. It's up to him. Pray for me because on weeks like this past week, I could tell you about midweek, I got nothing. I got nothing spiritually. And I'm there sometimes as a pastor. I even burned out of a church, my last church, as a result of that. I need Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my life to remind me that I'm not the Savior, I'm not enough. And while you might want to remind me of that once in a while too, be careful. (laughs) The good news is, actually me not being enough, Jesus becomes everything. He becomes a savior, not me. And I'm free as a result with my kids, with my marriage, with you, with my non-Christian friends. I'm free to let him do his work. Pray for me. I need you guys. You need me. We need Jesus together. Let's jump back in. John the Baptist. John the Baptist found himself in a very similar place at the end of himself in John 3. And so he's passing on his glory as a prophet to Jesus. And we have to ask, why would he do that? What would he think of Jesus to that end? Well, verses 31 and 33 tell us kind of the convincing proofs of why we would give ourselves and really give our glory to Christ rather than own it for ourselves. Look at what it says in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. We don't know who's actually saying this. There's a big debate. Uh, Commentators disagree whether it's John the Baptist saying these words or it's actually probably, I think, John the Apostle, the writer of the gospel, saying it. But whatever the case, there's three quick points he makes about why we need to hand the glory over to Jesus. And the first one comes in verse 31. John says, Christ is from heaven and above all. And he says it twice. He's from heaven and above all. He's from heaven and above all. That's emphasis in scripture is a strong element of making a point here. Verses 32 and 33 talks about Christ coming with words and speaking the gospel filled with the spirit. Jesus was the most spiritually filled uh, person in history. And he spoke the truth. Verse 35 tells us the father loves the son and puts all things in his hands. All things meaning that he, in his love and goodness, is at work in every part of life. Jesus, in other words, is interested in every part of life right now, right here, with you and with me. What's John getting at? He's saying Christ is the preeminent Lord over all things. 
Even you and me, history itself, everything that's happening in our world today, everything that will happen and has happened through creation and providence, he's the Lord of all right here and right now. He is ruling over the heavens and the earth as I speak. And because he's the preeminent Lord and Savior of all, that means we give him our highest allegiance. That's why we point people to him. Because he's the one who truly saves and leads. This is why we might pursue a greater glory in Christ with John and throw our lot in with him because he's Lord of all. And the beauty of Christ being Lord of all is this. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. The pressure is off for you to make life happen and look good, to get that deal at work. The pressure's off to remake yourself and to look good, which our culture just absolutely loves to try and do. You don't have to fix your life because Christ has the power to make all things new. As a result, Christ brings glory to himself. And he brings glory even to us in his own way. John concludes our text which, with a promise in verse 36 that points us to how we gain glory in Christ. And he says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Whew, man, that's a, that's a tough text, you know. He affirms belief in Jesus, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you don't obey him, the implication being that the signs of obedience are, are working out of our faith, and if you don't obey him, you end up in, and that's what he's talking about with the wrath of God. What's this got to do with us? Well, the wonder of when Jesus comes with the gospel and enters into our world is this. All of us struggle to believe Christ. Some of us struggle more than others. If you notice in our text, it talked about the skeptics earlier in verse 32. It said that no one received Christ's testimony or truth meaning even Jesus was met with lots of skepticism. But that's because Christ brings certainty of truth and how many in our culture don't like certainty. If you're a skeptic, remember this. Don't be so certain about your, certainty, your uncertainty. Dare to ask what is true about Christ. I encourage you to be certain about him and what he said and what he's done. If you're a follower of Christ... The beauty of believing Christ, even obeying him and giving your life to him in a full measure, uh, really brings glory to Christ and even brings glory to you. That's the surprising part. Do you know what happens to John the Baptist? He gets killed for his faith in Christ, for speaking up even against the powers of the day. But Jesus highlights that he was one of the greatest people who ever lived to thousands of people. John didn't raise himself up, but Jesus raised him up. And here's what's going to happen. When you follow Jesus and seek a life where you want to glory in him, when you get to the end of time and, and pass through death into life, you'll hear a glory that goes like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You want to know something that's really beautiful? It's when the God of the universe tells you that. That's glory beyond anything any man could do or you could manufacture for yourself. 
the wonder of what this text says is that as you give away glory, in God's time and place, glory comes back to you. Follow the way of John by losing your glory for, Christ, for a greater glory in Christ. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus. Give up your glory and gain Christ himself. That's what purity, purification, even pure devotion looks like. In conclusion, back in the 70s, there was a youth music guy who wrote a bunch of Christian songs that you sang in all kinds of rallies and young life and youth groups and things like that. His name was Tony. And Tony wrote these songs and a few of them became super popular where they were sang everywhere, everywhere. And so Tony found himself at a concert uh, with a bunch of, uh, uh, of, cr- of Christian kids. It was like a youth rally with thousands of Christian kids. And he was one of the song leaders that day, along with a group of kids and some other adults. And they were going to get up and lead the music for that day. They bring out one of Tony's songs to sing. And they start to practice his song when one of the kids says, Stop, wait a second, that's not how you play it. And the kid says, this is how you play it, and he plays it a certain way. Tony's standing right there, and everybody is watching Tony going, this is the guy who wrote the song. (laughs) You know how Tony responded? He said, you know what? I think we should play it that way. That's great. And they went out and played it the way the kid wanted to play it. Tony gave away his glory. And a greater glory took place as a kid led his song before thousands of kids. Give up your glory and you'll find there's a far greater glory in store. Let's pray. Jesus, we all come with weakness. We all come with brokenness today. We all come wanting glory but not knowing how to handle it Tutor us at the feet of John the Baptist, of you ourselves, Lord Jesus, on how we may uh, decrease so that you can increase. And we pray that today, Lord, because it doesn't come naturally. We want to steal your glory sometimes. Forgive us for that. But lead us to something different, Lord. A life that's bigger than us. Following you, the Lord, who's bigger than us that we could know what real life and real glory is all about. In Christ's name, amen.